Real leaders are ordinary people with extraordinary determination. And we are all ordinary people, but we have extraordinary determination because we know that if we don't choose to stand up, then this epidemic of slaughter continues. We see the ground shifting, and today is yet another realization of the hard work that you all have been doing and the people that are not here today. Welcome to Episode 7 of How We Win. This is your weekly field report, chronicling the riveting run-up to the 2020 election. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We'll give you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The best antidote for anxiety is action. Today's episode is a special look at the Presidential Gun Safety Forum. Steve and I took a trip to Las Vegas to talk to the people who are making a difference, fighting to end this epidemic of gun violence. First, we sat down with the junior senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy. He talks about what it was like to run for office at such a young age and gives us a glimpse inside the gun legislation debate in the Senate. Then we're going to hear about the progress that has been made to fight gun violence over the last seven years from the executive director of Giffords. You don't want to miss any of these updates. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. The President of the United States has to stand up to the NRA and say, enough is enough. I'm not going to any longer accept your false choice that you're either in favor of the Second Amendment or you want to take everyone's guns away. We've seen, just over the last few months, the ground shift, the center of gravity move so much further into the direction of common sense gun policy. There is a moral power that comes from a student, a child, anyone, looking into the eyes of somebody in authority. And by in authority, I mean anybody old enough to vote. That sets off a voice in the back of your head that says, do not let this person down. That's what we have right now. A government that works really well for the gun industry. It's not working for our families, and we got a chance to turn that around in 2020. We are implicated It is not about them, it's not the NRA, it's not just the corporate gun lobby, it's us too, we all have to take responsibility. A truly extraordinary moment in Las Vegas last week where a lot of presidential candidates were there to talk about gun safety and gun reform. That's right. They had 10 of the top candidates committed, unfortunately. Bernie had his um, heart issue, so he wasn't able to attend. But nine candidates talking about the issue of gun violence and giving their ideas and plans for combating it. Yeah, and we had an opportunity to be there and talk to some folks that are just doing incredible work on this issue. Can't wait for everyone to hear them. Yeah, um, it gave me a lot of hope. It really did. I I learned a lot being there and talking to Senator Murphy and uh, Peter Ambler, who is the executive director of Giffords. And we also talked to other activists, including some of the March for Our Lives organizers that we'll, we'll have for a future show. Yeah. Um, but seeing what progress has really been made in the last seven years and where our national dialogue is with this right. was, was enlightening for me. Yeah, and it's hard to remember that when 
we have these, you know, devastating moments month after month, in some cases week after week. But to hear from the people doing this work every day is is going to make a, a difference in how people view this topic, I think. Yeah. But before we do that, um, we have to talk about impeachment, don't we? We have to talk, as as always, about a lot of things with Trump and impeachment in, in the world that we're living in is just sort of – one of many things going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about it as being that bright, shiny thing right. that um, is easy to distract from the concrete work that we can be doing as volunteers and activists right now. But it's important to look at, like, it's just, you know, bananas, first of all, in his great and unmatched wisdom. Oh, goodness. <laughs> he is— <laughs> talks like that. I mean, I've heard you talk like that, but not like on a tweet, just in private. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Trump and my personality is quite similar. Uh, But this is, you know, Trump tweeting after he got pushback for once about his foreign policy genius with Turkey and like basically leaving the Kurds. He's he's open basically to yeah he's basically serving up um, Putin's agenda on a platter to him. Right. And um, seems to be in a hurry to do it because you know there's a lot of action from our elected officials, our our Democrats that we elected to the House that are working hard to do the job we sent them there to do, which is put a check on Trump, hold him accountable. No one is above the law. Right. Uh, we're not seeing the same action from the Senate. And you can't help no. but notice that as polls show that more Americans are in favor of impeachment, the craziness coming out of that White House just escalates. Yeah, and that's a good point. The polls are showing that there's more favorability for the impeachment inquiry and also actually having him removed from office. Right. We need to keep amplifying that because yeah. that's what these representatives need is they need the public behind them to to be able to move forward. So in that vein, we also um, – Swing Left launched a House Defense Fund, okay. which raises money for our freshmen who have come out for impeachment. And frankly, the Republicans are raising a lot of money on this issue, too. Yeah, we can't forget that impeachment has been a huge boon to the Republicans. They're raising millions and millions of dollars off of it. And we have some freshmen to defend who are in very vulnerable seats and were willing to come out in favor of impeachment. Um, And now they've got some targets on their campaigns because of it. So we'll have a link on our site, uh, the swingleft.org slash podcast site for mm-hmm. you to donate to the House Defense Fund. Yep. And, uh, you know, the other thing that we always talk about with impeachment is the Senate. And we're seeing even more reasons why the Senate is where it's at. It's so important that we take the Senate away from the death grip of Mitch McConnell. Supreme Court's back in session. Right. The Supreme Court is hearing a case on discrimination of LGBTQ people in the workplace. And is it okay to fire someone because of how they identify? Right. Could you ever imagine when we made so much progress during the last administration that we would have a Supreme Court contemplating whether it's okay to fire someone for being gay or trans? It reminds me of what Congresswoman Karen Bass said 
when we interviewed her, mm-hmm. um, that we think when we're fighting these battles and we win some of these battles that we've won and we can keep moving forward. Right. But this administration has shown us that those things can always be pushed back and that we have to keep fighting. And it feels like a Sisyphean task a lot of the time with the boulder rolling back down on us. But this is why at its core, the Republicans are willing to go along with this madman who is uh, running their party like a cult leader because of the Supreme Court, um, because of these conservative judges they've been able to put in. So it's scary, but we need to, as you've said before, send RGB her – uh, vitamins, <laughs> and we need to take back the Senate. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That no matter how much progress is made, we can never let our guard down. And so this new wave of activism has to continue. We got to bring more people into the fold. We got to bring more voters into the fold, and we have to stay engaged. You know, it's not just RGB. I think we all need to take our vitamins, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, stay strong, <laughs> stay healthy, <laughs> drink lots of water. We get dehydrated too easy. Okay, now I'm going into health. This is turning into a health pod. So um, let's register some voters in these important swing states, Senate yeah. states. If you're in Arizona, if you're in Colorado, mm-hmm. if you're in North Carolina, if you're in Maine, if you're in Texas, these are Senate states where we really need to register more voters. So if you are anywhere near those states, get out there and register some voters. You can put in your zip code into swing left, find canvases. If you're close by there, have that face-to-face contact. Start registering voters now. If you're from afar, then you can write letters to those voters. Um, You can use Vote Forward that we partner with at Swing Left. Mm -hmm. We need to get more Democrats registered in these important states. Great. We also have some work to do with Virginia. Which we're we're talking long term, we're talking 2020, and now we're talking next month. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about Virginia and what this election coming up next month means because, first of all, it's going to have huge sound waves. Right. The results of this election for both the Democratic Party and the Republicans. Mm-hmm. You know, Trump and the Republicans are eyeing this race in Virginia because they want to see where our activist base is at and if we can actually do this. The other thing that I was thinking of is, um, you know, we have like take back the White House. I mean, look. We have to take back the White House. We have to take back the Senate. We know this. But in a way, that's like the duct tape on our democracy, right? That's the immediate thing that we have to do to stop this, you know, horrible damage that's going on. But the long game where we're going to build sustained power is these local legislatures, especially before the census. That's why Virginia is so critical. The Republicans are great at doing this. They have built power through local legislatures for decades, and that's why they've been able to disenfranchise voters, gerrymander these districts, and stay in power even though the majority of us um, are progressive. So Virginia is just so important. Right. So we're trying to flip the state legislature in Virginia. There are 20 seats that Swing Left has ID'd that are flippable and will make a huge difference and need some support uh, in the in the next few weeks because that election is in November. Yeah, it's coming up soon. And 
again, you can make phone calls. We, mm-hmm. We're plugged in with these candidates. We need two House of Delegates seats, two state Senate seats. We already have the governor. Mm-hmm. So um, then we'll have the trifecta and we can make some real long-term change and send a message to the Republicans and Trump right now that we have not gone anywhere and we will not go anywhere. So please volunteer, help out Virginia right now. That should be like what you're thinking about what you're doing. And you know, an interesting thing, a new poll has shown that gun reform is a top issue for Virginia voters. So if this is something you're passionate about, and I think if you're listening to this, you probably are. They need to hear from other people who are encouraging them to vote around this issue because Democrats in Virginia have some solutions that people are excited about. Yeah, that's a really good point and um, a great segue into the the gun form and the interviews that we talked about because seven years ago, the gun issue was kind of toxic to right. politicians running for office. Republicans even, and Democrats. Yeah, yeah. They, they couldn't even really talk about it openly. And now because of this great work led in large part by young people, by the um, Parkland students, the March mm-hmm. for Our Lives organizers and others – it's been a top issue, and it's it's right up there uh, with health care and climate change. So I'm excited for you guys to hear about our interviews that we did remotely from the field. In a few weeks, we're excited to bring you interviews with two young women from March for Our Lives who are going to talk about the outstanding work that that organization is doing. Right. We want to do uh, an episode uh, just about organizing with young people and the great work that they're doing. So that's kind of come up in a couple of weeks. But now we're going to hear from... Senator Chris Murphy. Find a moment of calm at Classical WETA 90.9 FM. Available to stream now at classicalweta.org or on the Classical WETA app. Chris Murphy is a junior senator from Connecticut, and following the tragic shooting in Newtown, has become a leading advocate for preventing gun violence. We had the opportunity to catch up with him at the Gun Safety Forum in Las Vegas. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Yeah, awesome to be here with you guys. Today's event has been put together by the young organizers from March for Our Lives and from the Giffords Group. We've had nine presidential candidates here. What has this event meant to you? Well, it's amazing to see Democratic candidates for president trying to outdo each other with their <laughs> bold, comprehensive plans to attack the epidemic of gun violence in this country. This was a pretty lonely fight for many of us uh, six or seven years ago when the modern anti-gun violence movement launched after uh, Sandy Hook. It's also amazing to have the opportunity for activists to sort of hear personally from these candidates in a longer form format uh, about why they care about this issue, to hear a little bit about their core and their foundation and their passion, uh, because my hope is at the end of this, um, activists you know, have a better sense of uh, how passionate our candidates are about gun violence and maybe will volunteer a little bit more enthusiastically for some of these folks knowing how connected they are to trying to solve this problem. And some have been historically more active than others in these issues. Well, that's true. Um, I, listen, I mean, Vice President Biden was there at the genesis of a lot of the pieces of legislation that have kept us safe. Um, 
uh, others uh, are newer to this cause. But uh, listen, I'm an example of somebody who's new to this cause. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't work too much on the issue of gun violence before Sandy Hook. Uh, that was a awakening for me. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of days where I'm ashamed of the fact that it took me so long to get here. So I'm certainly not one that judges anybody for, you know, showing up to this fight on the later side. I'm amongst them. What matters is what are you doing right now? What are you doing to um, continue to build the power of the anti-gun violence movement. We're stronger than the NRA is today, um, and we just need to keep on getting stronger. This isn't pandering, but uh, I live in Los Angeles. I'm from Washington, D.C., but I have donated money to your campaign and, and you. follow you because of the <laughs> largely because of the great work you've been doing since Newtown. So maybe that is pandering a little bit. I don't know. But <laughs> it's just the it's, truth. It's, it's, worth, it's worth noticing. Just happenstance that we'd have the opportunity to speak. So. I think, listen, I, you know, I think what, what I appreciate is that we're seeing candidates show courage right now. I mean, authenticity in politics is the coin of the realm. People want to see who you really are. Um, and, you know, to the extent that I have been able to lead on this, it's in part because I've taken some chances. You know, I didn't know whether the filibuster was going to be a disaster, whether anybody was going to care. But to me, I, I didn't feel like I had an alternative except to do something exceptional to try to change the conversation on this issue. And what I love is that there's candidates up there on stage today, you know, that are proposing, you know, big, bold reforms, some of them very controversial, but they're they're showing who they are. Um, they're, they're, they're putting their their passion for saving lives on the outside. For a long time as Democrats, we were so scared of the gun lobby, so scared of what swing voters might think if we said what we really thought on the issue of guns. Um, we're not scared anymore, and that's accruing to our advantage. Have you heard anything specific today that you're excited about? I think it was really great that throughout the day, you know, we were focusing not just on gun laws, but on the circumstances that um, create uh, violence, right? So what we know is that um, America's, you know, broad history of racial oppression and repression and discrimination um, is directly connected to um, to our history of violence. What we also know is that if you are poor, you are much more likely to be the victim of violence um, or, frankly, the perpetrator of violence in this country, whether it be against yourself um, or against others. And so I did appreciate the fact that there was a lot of talk about how you, you know, change the relationship between police departments and communities of color, how you, you know, pour resources into um, uh, underserved places as a means of uh, trying to give kids a, a, a way out of their circumstances. So I, I thought we were having a really good, big, comprehensive conversation today, which is good. Um, I want to take a step back to when you were first elected to office at 25. When did you know that you wanted to serve Connecticut as an elected official? And then how did you go about doing that. Yeah. So I was an organizer out of the womb. Um, my yeah. my you know, parents aren't political uh, at all. And so they sort of wonder where it came from. But I was a student activist. So, you know, I saw injustice around every corner as a kid. I organized, you know, my classmates against the dress codes that I thought were overly restrictive. The renovations at my high school were going too slow. And so I paraded kids down to the Board of Education. Um, I cared a lot about the environment as a kid. Um, and so I remember my first intersection with politics being as a teenager when I would go down and 
um, clean up the river that I grew up next to. And, and then I remember having an epiphany that, you know, maybe I was better off trying to make sure that the people who ran my town, you know, stopped letting this river be polluted in the first place rather than coming to the river on the back end and right. cleaning it up. And so I started working for candidates that believed in the things that I believed in um, when it came to education and the environment. It tended to be all Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I... Um, I got pretty deep into political action as a teenager. And so, you know, when I ran for office when I was 25, I had already been organizing for, you know, almost a decade at that point. Did you um, get those renovations sped up? Uh, We did. It was really important to me as a a basketball player uh, in my senior year at my high school that we'd be able to play a few games in the gymnasium in front of all of our friends and family. And we did get the renovations sped up so that we played, I think, our final one or two basketball games my senior year in that gym. So, but like I learned a lot at that young age, you know, that, you know, you don't have to Listen to folks who tell you to wait in line. You know, you don't have to listen to people who tell you you have to pay your dues. I mean, if you have a, a passion for an issue and you have time on your hands to, you know, go out and um, you know try to convince people, uh, you can make a difference in any age. And so it was those early years of, of student activism that you know basically convinced me that if I wanted to run for office, I didn't have to wait. Um, that I could do it as soon as I was out of college, and that's what I did. And you did, yeah. Well, obviously, we're here uh, dealing with gun violence issues and uh, what you were intimately associated with, Newtown, uh, for me, was about the most demoralizing uh, event in my life, watching it unfold and then watching what appeared to be a lack of any kind of action as a result of that. But a lot has changed since then. Where are we now from where we were uh, back after Sandy Hook? So it was heartbreaking when we lost the background checks vote on the floor of the Senate in 2013. Of course, we didn't lose it. We had over 50 votes, but the Republicans filibustered it. Uh, and I, you know, can't, you know, worried that um, if Sandy Hook couldn't change the reality on the politics of gun violence in this country, what could? But I, you know, soon came to understand that this is really about um, political power, and it's uh, about the infrastructure that the NRA had built for 20 years. They were ready for those parents, and they took them down methodically when they came to the Capitol and tried to argue for change mm. in the spring of 2013. Uh, we weren't strong. Um, And so we didn't have the capacity to go out and organize phone calls into members' offices. We couldn't light up the switchboards. We couldn't, you know, put people into the town hall meetings like the NRA could. And so what we've been doing since 2013 is, you know, building up um, a movement um, such that today I think we're more powerful than the gun lobby is, but that is a process. Um, And it really isn't about, you know, moments of epiphany um, in this country. Um, it's it's about um, building your power and eventually getting to the point where members of Congress know that if they cross you, they're going to pay a political price. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are in the anti-gun violence movement, which is really empowering. So how can how can volunteers and citizens help support that work? What What's the best thing for them to be doing right now? Well, you know, what was so interesting about the 2018 election is that the issue of gun violence became a, um, a, a decisive issue for many voters. And so health care was the number one issue for anybody that voted for a Democrat in the right. midterm elections, but guns was number two. Right. Uh, and so I think the more that people are just out there talking to their neighbors about, you know, this 
you know, unbelievable chasm that exists between the 90% of Americans that want universal background checks and the refusal of Congress to get it done um, will give, you know, more reason for, for their neighbors to sort of um, ask questions about candidates on this issue as they're heading to the polls. Obviously, there are great organizations you can join today, um, an embarrassment of riches, mm -hmm. you know, whether it be Gifford's organization, if you're a young person, um, Students Demand Action or March for Your Lot, Our, Our Lives, mm -hmm. uh, Moms Demand Action. There are you know, so many places where you can plug in and find out local activities, working for a candidate, um, pressuring a local business to um, take a stronger stance against open carry. There's all sorts of things these organizations can point you to. All you need to do is sign up. You mentioned Congress's inability to act. It's uh, actually the House of Representatives has passed some legislation, some good legislation for background checks and what uh, HR uh, eight eight. Thank you. I think the question that everyone wants to know, especially from uh, a progressive senator who's working hard for change in the Senate, is how frustrating is it right now in the Senate to have a leader that's blocking all of this legislation, this legislation from even getting to a vote? Uh, it's maddening, uh, but at some level, it's empowering. I mean, we know where the problem is. Um, you know, we have isolated it. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, the president of the United States and the majority leader of the Senate. If you care about getting a universal background checks bill passed in the uh, next two years, then you have to do two things. You have to make sure that Democrats get elected to the United States Senate and you have to get rid of Donald J. Trump from the White House. Both of those things are within our grasp today. Um, it is interesting, though, I will tell you, um, to receive calls from my Republican colleagues, many of which voted against the background checks bill in 2013, expressing their hope that there is a new background checks proposal that could come before the Senate before the 2020 election. It's right there. It's right there. It's, it's right, right there, there for the taking. Uh, so they are maybe not willing, Republicans in the Senate are maybe not willing yet to support universal background checks, but they, you know, they'd like to be on record before they have to put their name on the ballot um, for supporting some expansion mm -hmm. of background checks. And uh, that is a sea change. I was not getting these calls from my Republican colleagues That's a year ago or two years ago. They recognize for the first time that they're on the wrong side of this issue. And they are very nervous, having watched what happened in 2018 and having watched all the volunteers flood into this movement, that uh, they're going to get beat in 2020 if they don't somehow find a way to change their position. Uh, so it's just a reminder to me to keep up what we're doing. The pressure is working. It's not a matter of recalibrating what we're doing. It's just a matter of doing more. What's wrong with Mitch McConnell? Yeah. It's like, do you have an answer for any clues for us on the outside? Yeah, give us it the inside so scoop weird. With, on that. that well, challenge. I mean, so let me let me give you let me give you the most charitable answer I can uh, <laughs> to the question of what's wrong with Mitch McConnell. Uh, so I think in 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 the Senate, um, you know, right now the, the, Donald Trump is a cult of personality, and so. Uh, Republicans are living with the fact that many of the members of their base follow the president wherever he goes. And so McConnell, I think, is reluctant to step out on any policy limb without knowing where Donald Trump is. And he's probably more reluctant to step out on guns than on anything else because that is still a white-hot issue for much of the Republican base. So McConnell has put all the pressure on Trump to do a deal with people like me on background checks so that McConnell has some assurance that if he brings a bill up for a debate in the Senate, that Trump won't submarine him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a matter of 
politics, I guess I understand that. Um, but McConnell and the Republican Senate are going to go down with Trump if they don't do something on background checks. If Cory Gardner has to go back to Colorado and John Cornyn has to go back to Texas um, and Susan Collins has to go back to Maine with without having voted on a background checks proposal, I don't think they can win. Um, and so at some point, McConnell has to you know, decide that he's got an independent responsibility, even if it's just a political responsibility to his members to do something on this. So uh, just if I'm accurate here and in interpreting what you're saying, really important that we get the majority in the Senate this next election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> critical. I mean, listen, let me be honest. I don't want to, you know, ultimately be reliant only on Democratic votes to pass gun measures that are supported by 90 percent of the American public. Right, um, so I, I, I would rather be able to chart a path where eventually we have big numbers of Republicans that um, will support these measures. And I'm encouraged, as I mentioned, that, you know, a lot of Republican senators are, you know, reconsidering their position. Lindsey Graham, you know, somebody who has publicly announced that he has switched his position on background checks. Um, <sighs> but for the time being, you know, we don't... Um, uh, I'm sorry, know, I, take, I, understand. <laughs> I, I will take Lindsay's cooperation <laughs> on the issues that I can get. <laughs> okay. uh, but, uh, you know, for the time being, I can't rely on Republicans to get this done. So in the short term, um, I have to advocate for Democrats to win every race possible in the Senate and in the House and to win the White House. That's the quickest way that we're going to get a bill done that will literally save um, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives in this country. And like you said, has 90 percent you know, approval for background checks in our country. There's nothing like, like, how, there's how nothing is, like this. How is that even an issue? How does anything get 90% approval today right. in the United States? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's miraculous that um, this issue, which has this mythology built around it as being hyper-controversial, mm. is one of the least controversial yeah. issues in the electorate today. Um, and I've said from the beginning that democracy doesn't allow for 90% of Americans not to get their way for very long. And we're getting to that point where Americans are you know, fed up that they've been telling Congress to do something on background checks and they haven't gotten it done. And by the way, the majorities for assault weapons bans you know, are not 90%, but they're pretty overwhelming as well. You know, you're talking about a two to one margin in favor of getting rid of assault weapons bans. You don't get that uh, kind of ratio of, of support to opposition on many other issues either. Well, we always wrap up these interviews by asking people what gives them hope for the future. Well, I mean, these kids give me hope. Um, you know, I'm what passes for young in the United States Senate. Uh, and so, uh, you are. Uh, I know, it's, it's all relative. It's all relative. Uh, but, you know, spending uh, this week, you know, here in Las Vegas with um, these high school and college right. students who have woken up. I mean, I haven't just woken up on guns. They've woken up on climate change as well. It shouldn't be their responsibility, right? I mean, 18-year-old and 20-year-old kids shouldn't have to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. But, you know, I'm a history buff and I know that there's, you know, no great successful social change movement in, um, you know, this country's history that wasn't led in some way, shape or form by young people. Um, and so now that young people are at the forefront of the climate movement and the anti-gun violence movement, I feel more confident than uh, ever before that we're going to get this right. I wish they didn't have to, uh, but I know from uh, reading the history books that this is ultimately 
ultimately how you get things done. And I'm optimistic because I've seen the anti-gun violence movement get stronger and stronger. I've seen Republicans get more, more and more scared of us. I've seen the political process begin to work with the passage of the bill in the House of Representatives. Um, I frankly wake up every single day super optimistic about our ability to get um, not just the background checks bill done, but other comprehensive measures um, enacted. Um, so uh, I have lots of reasons to be optimistic about the future um, on this issue of saving uh, lives inside this epidemic of gun violence. Yeah. Well, thank you for your leadership on this issue and for the blast to the past of your <laughs> Womb organizing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wish I had a more interesting origin story, but uh, it's, it's pretty uh, cool. As my, father, as my father says, it must be a recessive gene. So, well, and we'll work to get you uh, hopefully a few more colleagues in the Senate that are working with you on these issues. I need them. I need them. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Senator. That was Senator Chris Murphy. Speaking at the Gun Safety Forum in Las Vegas last week, we also had the opportunity to speak with Peter Ambler, the executive director of Giffords, which co-hosted the event. Yeah, they were both great. And here's Peter Ambler's interview. We are joined now by Peter Ambler, the executive director and a founder of Giffords, an organization that's tackling America's gun violence crisis. It's led by former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, who was shot and injured while she was campaigning. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Giffords is co-hosting a gun safety town hall featuring nine presidential candidates today. Why do this in Las Vegas and at this point in the cycle? Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of the worst mass shooting in American history. Um, the Route 91 Festival, 58 people um, died there. Over 800 were injured. This is a very, very important issue, like in the state. And we knew that candidates, advocates would be eager to come here to make their voices heard on this important issue at this important time for both the issue and also, of course, in the presidential cycle. What do you think about the ideas you're hearing from the candidates so far? It's interesting, a lot, of, a lot of great ideas, and I think the big story here today, um, and when it comes to guns in the primary in general, is you know, how much cohesion and unity there is. Mm. Um, you know, just a few years ago, you know, you, you'd have a lot of candidates who were running away from as opposed to toward this issue, and now they're kind of grappling with each other, trying to show, the, trying to show voters that you know, th they are the most passionate about this issue. They have the boldest policy proposal. And, you know, that's, um, you know, exemplary of the shifting politics. This has become a kitchen table issue, right, mm -hmm. because it's become personal for voters across the country. And what we're hearing from the candidates today is, you know, uh, reflective of the broad, complex, but solvable element of gun violence, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're hearing a lot of different solutions that would sort of, you know, address the suicide issue, right? With something like, you know, the red flag extreme risk protection laws, universal background checks, licensing, you know, uh, you know dealing with, you know, banning and regulating assault, uh, assault rifles. Right. Um, this is, you know, a complex problem, um, but it's not beyond our capacity to solve it. We as a country can do great things, and I know that one of the candidates up on that stage is going to be the person to take on the NRA, beat Trump, and turn the White House um, into a force for good and progress and change on gun reform. We're certainly looking forward to rallying behind whoever that candidate yes. is <laughs> mm -hmm. and making sure that they get to the White House. 
has Giffords had any conversations with the White House about this issue? You know, have has there been any? I was I would say access? most of our conversations sort of happen through intermediaries <laughs> right. on the Hill. Yeah, um, we haven't not talked to them, but um, we don't have the same access that the NRA does. Really? No. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, one thing that we've been able to do over the past seven years is educate the American people to um, know what's bullshit and what's right. not, you know? Yeah. I think um, you know, seven years ago, you would ask people in the poll, and uh, they'd say, oh, you know, it's a, you know, gun violence is a mental health issue, right? Um, but, about you know, seven years ago, you said? Yeah, about seven years yeah. ago, which is when we started this organization, right. mm -hmm. um, which is in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. And everything that you see sort of that's been built politically around gun violence prevention, that's all been built in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. yeah. This movement, mm -hmm. and this is one, thing, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope, this movement is only seven years old. Mm -hmm. And you think about all the progress we've, that we've made in a short period of time, moving from a politics that was you know, considered a third rail issue to one that's now considered a kitchen table issue, where you have all these candidates showing up, taking the stage, addressing their plans for uh, gun safety policies. Um, yeah, that's really encouraging to hear yeah. because for myself, and we were just talking about this with Senator Murphy and so many, Sandy Hook was so demoralizing to, on its face, not see any action, at least from Congress, in the face of that un unthinkable yeah. tragedy. You know, people used to ask me, they used to tell me, like, if it weren't, if Sandy Hook didn't change things, then what can, what can right? or nothing ever will. But under the surface, so much has changed. Yes, um, our expanded background checks bill was filibustered by Mitch McConnell, Ted Cruz in, in, in the Senate. Not crazy about um, those two. Not, crazy, not crazy about those two. <laughs> <laughs> um, we shouldn't be shocked. Um, but it also catalyzed a national movement. Mm -hmm. And it, that the anger that Americans felt when you know, that legislation was filibustered translated into you know, activism that you know spanned all 50 states and you know went on for years in, into the future. So you go back to 2018, which was really when you know gun safety as an affirmative political message for, for Democrats it was no longer toxic. It was, was never that it was you not could, toxic. Yeah, yeah. And people realized Democrats realized that this is an issue that worked to our political advantage. Right. right. That they could go beat up Republicans on this, and that it was a wedge issue for us, not not to be used against us. Mm -hmm. So what did we do in 18? Well, we beat 40 NRA-backed Republican incumbents. And we did it um, because of, not despite, the issue of guns. And what did that give the new Democratic majority in the House of Representatives? It gave them a mandate to act. And the, um, we, Gabby, you know, traveled back to Congress, her old haunts, and introduced H.R. 8 on January 8th, on the eight-year anniversary of, um, of her being shot. Mm. And just a few weeks later, it you know, swept through the House with a 50-vote bipartisan margin um, and of course, in the aftermath of that, it's been languishing on Mitch McConnell's desk. Mm -hmm. But you know, you've seen this movement that we and you know millions of other advocates across the country have built up. You know, d directing our sort of you know political anger, power, influence. You know, at Trump, at McConnell, at the other Republican senators that are holding us back and preventing this life-saving law, this life-saving bill from becoming law. So what we know is that you know, obviously, you can see here today. Gun safety is a big issue in, in the primary campaign. Everybody's talking about it. But we also know it's going to be a critical contrast issue um, between our eventual nominee and Donald Trump and 
the general. And this is, you can see Trump sort of floundering. If he's on in this, his right? If he's still in his job, just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody smarter than I am somewhere. Knows, <laughs> like, we're not going to go down enough. that word. I'm yeah. sorry, even so. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> but of course, and, and then you see the NRA up. getting implicated in all this stuff, too. So that's, right. a, that's a whole other oh, yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you you called the legislation life-saving, mm-hmm. which is a, r- a really powerful statement. But you've also worked a lot in D.C. Compromise is usually critical. When you are talking about life-saving stuff like this, d- does compromise play a role? And, and if so, how do, you, how do you approach that? Of course. When lives are at stake, you know, you can't. Um, you, you don't have the sort of the privilege of um, having you know purity tests, right? Okay. And what we need to be able to do is you know bring folks together, um, assemble a political coalition of uh, you know elected officials of members of Congress who are going to vote for something that is going to make an, uh, a difference. So, yes, like I'd like to snap my fingers and get put put the Cadillac plan in, in, in into effect, right? Mm-hmm. That's obviously not going to happen. That's not how uh, Congress works and how Washington D.C. works. But we have nearly forty thousand people who die every year from gun violence in this country. We have one hundred and fifty thousand who are shot. There are millions of Americans and American children who are traumatized mm-hmm. on a daily, weekly, month monthly basis because of these lockdown drills because. Yeah of the, you know, they live in, you know, uh, violent neighborhoods because of domestic violence incidents and suicides, like, in, in, their, in, in their homes. Because there's public violence and there's private violence, and it's equally traumatizing. Which is all to say, even with the smallest of measures, even with the most incremental of progress, we're talking about saving thousands of lives every year. Mm. So that this, the stakes are really, are, are really couldn't high. Be higher. Yeah, it could, couldn't yeah. be higher because you're talking about life and death. It's literally a life or, or death issue, and uh, you've worked in Congress a lot before this. Has the the contact you've had working on this issue? Obviously, you're you're working with people who are directly affected by the violence um, all the time. Has it changed the way that you organize and uh, and mobilize on this issue to have? such close contact to um, an intimate knowledge of this tragedy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody's different. You know, when you do work on this issue, it wears on you, you know? Yeah. Because um, it's sad. It's, it's life and death. And you're constantly, as an advocate, responding to these, you know, uh, the, these tragedies, right? And um, every time there's some big mass shooting splash across the headlines, breaking news on the television, you're um, deluged with media requests mm-hmm. and requests from elected officials and advocates, and you're supposed to be out there organizing. But you know, like we're we're also humans. You don't really um, even have time to take that. You in, don't I really guess, have time so. to take it yeah. in. So I mean, uh, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, personally, um, I, I sort of compartmentalize <laughs> a little bit. Come from what? Uh, I, I compartmentalize oh, a yeah. little bit, right? Um, and I think I have that kind of like, you know, like you said, I used to work in Congress. So I have this old school kind of like staffer mentality, mm-hmm. right, where I can kind of like remove myself uh, to a certain extent from what I'm working on. Um, but obviously I was in that role when Gabby got shot. And, um, you know, a colleague of mine, Gabe Zerman, was murdered. You know, f- five others died. Um, you know, several were shot, including two other colleagues. And there, there's no escaping the sort of human emotional cost of that. And um, what the most uh, successful advocates, you know, the, the, the survivors who, involve, who are involved in this movement have done, have you know, turned that, that loss and that trauma into a source of strength. And they're really the people that on a you know, day-to-day basis, the people who have lost loved ones, 
um, or have been shot and injured themselves who you know, keep driving this forward. And those are the people ultimately who are, we're responsible to and um, that are holding like the moral mantle that uh, you know, I think are ultimately gonna be the ones uh, you know, driving change. Yeah, they're incredibly inspiring uh, survivors of these tragedies that move forward like Gabby and, um, and show such leadership. I think the question that I always ask, and I know normal people do, is like, what would I do in that situation? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine I would have the courage that some of these, uh, and some of these young activists certainly uh, have. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, something else that sort of you know, changed for me as I've done this, um, you know, I've been doing this work about seven years. It's been almost now nine years since Gabby was shot. And the, the thing that has um, changed for me most, though, in the intermediate time is, like, I became a parent. Mm-hmm. So I have a, you know, two, almost three-year-old daughter. And the way that you sort of process these, like, questions of, like, loss and, you know, our, and the way you kind of think about our sort of societal responsibility to protect those who can't protect themselves, like, really sort of kicks it in a more powerful way when you become a parent. Yeah. And I, I wasn't expecting that. And it sort of, I think, connected me like more personally to the work than, um, than I ever imagined I, I, I would be. We always end up you know, with one final question. Great. What gives you the most hope? I mean, I'd be silly today to, uh, to say anything other than the fact that we're sitting here with you know, the 10 top presidential candidates committed to this forum with hundreds of advocates, survivors, gun owners, veterans, law enforcement officials, this broad coalition of passionate advocates, activists, and elected officials gathered you know, under a single banner of taking on the NRA, taking back the White House, and finally um, you know, putting in place laws and policies that are going to address this grave um, moral embarrassment and failure that we have allowed to fester and perpetuate in our society. Mm. Um, so these candidates give me hope, the survivors, the activists, that they all give me hope. And um, I'm not only hopeful, but I'm confident that um, one of these candidates is going to be the next president of the United States. And that along with that, we are going to elect a gun safety majority in the United States Senate. And a lot sooner than I think a lot of us realize, we are going to be at signing ceremonies like in the Rose Garden for the um, policies and the bills that we've been fighting for for so many years. I can get behind that vision 100 percent. That's well said. And and thank you again for reminding us how much. Uh, has how progress has been made on this issue. It's, it's not that far off. I like to say, um, one of my expressions is that change happens slowly and then all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and for several years there, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, it seemed like change was happening awfully slowly. Um, but today, it really does feel like it's happening all at once. Like the floodgates are open and that we are really kind of driving the narrative and picking up wins as we go. And I think you know, um, sometimes you need um, a sort of temporal perspective to understand what's happening, right, in any given moment. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I do think that five, ten years from now, we're going to look back on events like this, years like this, times like this, as when this change really did occur and the country finally woke up from this sort of national stupor and decided to get real and protect our kids' communities from gun violence. Well, thank you for the incredible work you're doing, and thank you for sitting down and, and talking to us about it. Yeah. Thank well, you thank so you much. so much. You bet. 
for joining us today and thank you for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and our work has to start right now. We want to hear from you. Who would you like to hear on our show? What topics do you want to discuss? And we want your story. Email us at podcast at swingleft.org. Big thank you to everyone who has subscribed, rated, and given us reviews. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, please sign up to volunteer. Sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we're excited to bring you more stories from the field next Wednesday. See you then. Find a moment of calm at Classical WETA 90.9 FM. Available to stream now at classicalweta.org or on the Classical WETA app. MSW.